Good morning again. I actually hadn't seen that first video, so I was just sitting here watching it with the rest of you. But we are um, in the middle of a series on money. Eh, boring, right? Some of you are like, yes, I nerd out about this stuff. Others of you are like, ugh, I do not want to hear about this. But for the most part, based on your Easter surveys that you gave us, most of you want to hear about what the Bible has to say and what Jesus and God has to say about our finances. And we're not just talking about giving to the church or tithes and offerings. That's part of it. But we're talking about personal finance, how to steward our finances. And I've asked this the past couple of weeks. Don't you wish that in high school there was a class on personal finance and everyone's like, yep. <laughs> I wish I would have been more prepared going into adulthood on how to do things like pay bills and balance a checkbook and what in the world is a 401k. Like those types of things. We need to know those. Um, but then more than that, we need to know what God says about what to do with it. Because if we believe that everything is God's and he gives good gifts to us, then money is part of those good gifts and we steward what he's entrusting to us. So, so far in this series, we talked last week about the lens of magnification, which is basically just money makes you more of what you already are. It magnifies the person you are. So whoever you are broke, you're just going to be a bigger version of that rich. So if you're a jerk broke, you're just going to be a really big jerk when you're rich. If you are a kind, caring, compassionate, giving person broke, you're going to be a kind, caring, compassionate, giving person when you're rich in a bigger way. So it just makes you more of what you already are. And then the lens of ownership we talked about. God owns it all and we are managers. When we can view our money that way, that God actually owns this, I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for God, then all of a sudden there's accountability there, right? If Jeannie gave me $100,000 and she leaves for a month and she's like, okay, I want you to make some like good investments, um, purchase things you think that I would like or I would need to get done what I need to get done. Do you think I'm going to just go blow it on whatever I want or buy a down payment for a house that I want that I don't actually have the income for? Work? Like I'm going to live in this, Jeannie, or am I going to just do it all on like frozen pizzas, like $100,000 worth of frozen No. When I know she's coming back, and she's going to be like, okay, show me what you did with this money while I was gone that I entrusted to you. And she's going to want to see it's all there or even better, I've multiplied it by what I've done with it, right? It's the same thing with the lens of ownership. God owns it all, so that changes how we view our money, how we view what we do with it. And then just as a review, last week we talked about five proven biblical principles. And that was to live on a written budget, avoid debt, have healthy relationships, save and invest, and be generous. Those are five. There's a lot of biblical principles about money. But those are just five. And if you do those five, these are the key five. And if you do them over and over and over again over years, you will see 100% of the time a positive return and you will be in a healthy place. So today we are talking about four lies that the culture tells us about money. And the key truth that we need to keep in mind as we go through these four lies is that money is a tool to use for God's kingdom. Especially if we look at it through the lens of ownership, right? If we look at it through the lens of ownership that it's already God's, then money is a tool that we use for God's kingdom. 
we haven't, Kyle and I have not always been debt-free. I shared last week that even though we're young, it's not like we have a huge retirement fund saved up or anything like that. But we, um, have, we are debt-free, but we haven't always been. So we started off with some student loans. We got those paid off. And then um, we actually started to listen to lies of the world, got a credit card, and got back into debt. And then had to work and pay it off when we could have been living. All that money that had to go to the debt, we could have been saving or using or giving. And we had to pay it off to the debt instead. We started to listen to what the culture tells us about lies of money and possession. So here's the thing. If you do what culture says when it comes to money, you're going to get culture-like results. If you do what the culture says when it comes to money, you'll get the same results the culture gets. But if you do what the Redeemer says to do about money, you will get redeemed results. It doesn't matter our weaknesses or our insufficiencies. If we can just trust that even if it doesn't fully make sense, that what he says in his word is true, and if he says it works, it works, then he will redeem our weaknesses and our mistakes and our inabilities, and he will give us redeemed results. Results. So today I want to walk through these four lies that our culture tells us about money versus what God says. So let's start with what Jesus says in John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's what lies are like. Lies are like covering us up so we can't see. Lies are like turning the lights out, wearing a blindfold. And he says, I am the light. If you follow me, you will come out of the darkness. And that's what he wants to show us today about these principles. When I think about money in our world today, it's really a dark topic. It's a, we don't want, we cover our faces in shame or we're embarrassed or it's uncomfortable or impolite. We don't want to talk about it. And to be honest, it's uncomfortable to stand up here and talk about money. It, it really is. <laughs> it really is. It's an uncomfortable, too often dark topic because sadly, it is a place of bondage for a lot of people. It's a place of bondage. It owns us instead of it being God's ownership. It's a place of shame and it's a place of guilt and a place of looking back and embarrassment over maybe mistakes or what we perceive as a lack But again, when we filter everything that we're going to be talking about through the lens of Scripture, it changes, and then there's a light that shines on it. It doesn't have to be as scary to talk about anymore. And that's what money is. It is a tool. It is a tool that we can use for the good of God's kingdom. In our everyday lives, in our legacy down the road, it is a tool that we can use for God's kingdom. So number one, the first lie that the culture tells us about money is you deserve to have what they have. So fill that in, and if you have your fill-in-the-blank notes, you deserve to have what they have. And I think, I think there's a good chance, right, that a lot of us in here hear that and are like, well, that is true. <laughs> I do deserve. Everyone deserves the world. If everyone had the world, only one person would have the world, actually. There would have to be like six billion, however many people, worlds for everyone to have it. I heard someone say recently on a financial podcast I was listening to, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. You can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. You've got to be wise and steward and have a realistic perception of the world. So number one lie is You deserve to have what they have. This lie says you will be happy when you buy blank. 
oh, I will just be happy one day. Like, dream for me, lake house one day. As a second home, of course. (laughs) A lake house, and I want some jet skis, and I want to just go jet skiing on the lake all the time. But then when I realistically think about it, that's way too many mosquitoes. I don't really like murky water. So it's just a dream. Like, it's just a dream. But if I finally have my lake house, or if I have a more open concept floor plan, or I caught myself this week, man, if I just had a bigger backyard, this house would be perfect. If I just had a bigger backyard. If my dog just didn't shed. If I spent all the money on like a miniature hyperallergenic poodle, that would be the best. Like if I just had that, like the grass is greener, right? Or you'll be happy if you just get a new car. Like, I need a 2023. I need a 20. I'll just be happy if I get that. If it was just a little bigger, if it was just a little better, I'd be happy if I could just buy that jacket this winter, then I'd be happy. If you can just buy blank, whatever it is for you, I'd be happy. We're all tempted to think that way because our culture is stacked up to make us think we need newer, better, brighter everything. We need more flashy, more expensive, more name brand, whatever it is electric car. We need all of these things to be happy. And that that is the lie that has completely taken over our culture because we live in a culture that worships stuff. Our culture doesn't worship God. Our culture worships stuff. I mean, I had to just turn on the TV. You can just be watching your favorite show and all of a sudden they're like holding a bag of Doritos like this in the camera. It's like, I need those Doritos to be happy. You know, it's like it's brand placement, advertisement, even in shows. All the time, you know, you're like, I don't watch sports very often, but it's on and I hear it. And it'll say, he's like talking about these guys' stats or that amazing play that just happened or whatever. And it's like, by the way, this is brought to you by blah, 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 blah. And he's just like randomly reading off in and out. You can tell he does not like having to do what he's doing, but he has to do it because this is how he gets paid, right? We worship stuff. It is everywhere. People pay like millions of dollars for a 30-second ad on Super Bowl Sunday. We worship stuff. And we're willing to throw our money down at the feet of stuff. But then that ends up holding us in bondage. Because we don't really believe, or we do really believe, that the newness of stuff drives our happiness. The newer, the better, the less hand-me-down, the less second-hand, the brighter. You know, all of that is what drives us. But in Scripture, God talks about money more than heaven and earth combined. More than heaven and earth combined. And even though it's hard for us to get up here and say, okay, we're going to preach to you guys about money. Like, that is hard for us to do. But Jesus talked about it more than heaven and earth combined. If we're supposed to be Christ-like, shouldn't we also be talking about it a fair deal, (laughs) at least a little bit? So we're going to be talking about this for a couple of weeks here. So the majority of Scripture... A majority of scripture is around money, whether it's parables or it's in the New Testament. A lot of it is warnings. A majority of what he talks about about money is warnings. You think about like the rich young ruler. There's a warning there. You think about the man in Luke, or it's also in Mark, and I think we read it last week. Jesus talks about who builds bigger and bigger barns to try to have more security. And Jesus calls him a fool for trusting in his things and in his, in his wealth. In fact, that's one of the only places in Scripture Jesus calls someone a fool. is about money and trusting in things and possessions. 
when you're studying James, and we went through James as a church together last year, but when you're studying James towards the end of the book, he's calling out elitists, elitists in Jerusalem because they've forgotten the poor and they're just hoarding their wealth. They're not doing anything for God's kingdom. So there's a lot of caution lights around this idea of money and stuff and worshiping it. It's okay to have nice stuff. I'm not like against nice stuff. It's okay to have nice stuff. But what we have to be careful is that our nice stuff doesn't have us. So it's okay to have nice stuff as long as our nice stuff does not have us. We don't want anything to be the master over us besides God. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So when money, when things, material possessions own us, it is saying it is impossible to still serve God. If it owns us, we cannot be fully devoted, recklessly abandoned, on fire for God when our heart is off worshiping something else and needing the next best thing. And it can have you too when you go into debt for it. And that's again when we're worshiping this God of stuff, when we're worshiping this God of things. It can have you when you go into debt for it, number one, because at that point, your stuff owns you. So you're in bondage to it. It literally owns you. If you don't make these payments, it's going to come back to bite you, right? It owns you. You're not in charge of it. Last week, when Proverbs said that the rich was, um, it says the rich was over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. We talked about that last week. It's in the book of Proverbs. So when you go into debt and you buy things that you can't afford, there's this level of financial bondage that you're actually, it's literally chains. It's literally, not literally, but it's really chains and bondage because that's money tied up in something else. And either you pay it and then you can't spend that on something or give it or whatever, or you don't pay it and you use your money the way that you would like to or feel called to even, but then the debtors are gonna come back for you. They're gonna come back for you. So it is literally a bondage. You don't have choices. You don't have options. And people who long to do something with their life and with their things and with their money, they can't do it because of a student loan or a car payment or whatever. It's holding them back, even sometimes holding them back from God's calling. So they don't have the margin to make different choices with their life because their stuff is owning them. Their stuff is owning them. And your stuff can own you when your identity, your contentment, your joy, and your peace are all wrapped up and all that you believe in is stuff. Your stuff can own you at an emotional and a heart level. And that's all God wants is he wants our heart. He wants our heart. But the enemy knows that. The world knows that. And so they go for our heart too. Just as hard, they go for our heart. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Can we be content in whatever situation that we're in? See, we're all about keeping up with the Joneses and comparing and following on Instagram, making sure we have all, you can tap it now and shop for the clothes that they're wearing. We're all about keeping up with the Joneses, but the news is, if the Joneses are the American ideal or the American standard, the news is that the Joneses don't have money. The Joneses be broke because the average American is a 78%, more than average, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 40% of Americans can't cover a $400 emergency bill in cash. So you're comparing yourself to broke. Just because they've bought the nice things doesn't mean they had the money for it because anyone can get a credit card and go into debt. 
Just because they bought the nice things doesn't mean they're rich. They could have just as much dollar signs and zeros in debt. And so we don't need to be comparing ourselves to this American average or this American ideal because we have a standard that God has set for us. A Christian teacher and pastor said, Christine Kane, she said, gratitude is not just what he has given us, it's what he has entrusted to us. It's not just what he's given us, but gratitude is showing what he's entrusted us and being grateful for what he's given us to steward. So the truth that can counter this lie is we are blessed to have what we have, whatever it is that we have. However little, however big, however much more we want, whatever the difference in lack is, we are blessed to have what we have. Number two, the second lie from the world today is you don't need anyone else. So write that in in your notes. You don't need anyone else. Luke 12, 7 says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are worth more than many sparrows. We are precious to God, and we are created for a relationship with him, but the scripture also says that we need to be known by people. We're known by God, but he wants us to be known by people as well, to have community, other believers that you're walking in life with. And if you're married, the number one way that you can do this is be known in your finances with your spouse. Do money together. Get on the same page. Two heads are better than one. Two heads might bump heads a lot, but they're better than one right? It's worth working through it. We have this idea in our heads in America, yeah, you're independent even when you get married. You can still be independent. You don't need his stuff. You don't need her things. You don't need her money. Or I make more money than them, so I'm the one in charge. Or I'm the one who works, and they're the one who stays home, so I get to make all the decisions, right? We think that it is one or the other based on this, that, or whatever standard that we give to how we make that decision. We think, well, it's mine, it's his, it's hers, so that's how we're going to leave it. But in this separate way, people are not combining their, we want to be more unified instead of running two separate tracks. And that's what when you get married, the Bible says, you'll become one, let no one separate what God has joined together. And the culture is trying to pull couples apart in this. And it's really hard to win financially as a married person, and your spouse and you are going in two separate directions. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be hard to work through. But I was listening to this, again, this financial podcast lately. I've been listening to them a lot lately. Um, this series has really got me like, ooh, okay, what can I do to even do better with all of this? You know, I'm like trying to get going. And I was listening to this podcast, and it's a secular couple. It's a secular podcast. And this lady, her name is Paula. She has this podcast, and her and her husband live off one income. And they pick the income that's the smaller income, and they live off of that so that they can save whatever income is more than 50% and put it all the way. So they're not, well, you make that and I make this. So we're going to say a percentage of mine and a percentage of yours. The, per the point isn't that they live off one income or whatever. The point is they're combined. They are joined, and they're a team. And they don't even necessarily believe what the Bible says, that when two are joined, they are one in marriage. And they still know financial savvy. They know from a financial advice background that that is the smart way to do it. That's the financially strong way to do that if you have those two incomes coming in and two people. The problem is our culture says, I make more money so I can do what I want with it. They have to do whatever. So if you're married, work together. Join your checking accounts, budget together, have budget meetings together. 
Don't let this separate you guys. Don't let it tear your marriage apart. And if you're single, if you are the sole income provider um, and you do not have someone that you're doing life with in marriage, you still need to be known in this space. You still need to have someone that you trust who you can be known within this. So have someone in your life who's good with money, who you trust, and you can say, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm on Amazon way too much. I'm on Amazon too much. Or I get too many subscription boxes. Or I am, don't really need to pay for Netflix, but there's this one show, and so I'm thinking about signing up for it ongoing. You know, you need someone you can talk to who's good with money, who can know you and be known in this area. So be known in this subject in your life. Be known in it. So when the world says you don't need anyone else, you bring in community. You do it God's way. The world wants to isolate us, not just in money, but in so many things. God's way is to bring in community and to be known and let yourself be known. So the truth is we need God and his people. We need God and his people. Number three, the third lie that we're going to talk about today from the culture about money is you are your mistake. You are your mistake. Whatever you wish you didn't do, whatever you wish you had done years ago, whatever it is, the culture wants to tell us you are that now. That is your identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Everyone has made mistakes with money. Everyone has made mistakes with money. The hard thing is that some people's money mistakes have more zeros on the back. And so when we have this, it's like a scorecard, right? We have a, the hard thing with money, why we might own that as a mistake even more on us is because we have like digital proof. We have numerical evidence of the mistake or the status or the lack or whatever it is. If it's like, me and Kyle, I'm like, oh my goodness, me and Kyle are just in such a good place in our marriage. But I don't have numbers for that. I don't have a scorecard for that. Or I could say, man, I'm just in a spiritually dry season or whatever. But it doesn't end up owning my identity necessarily because I don't have like a scorecard that can prove to the world where I'm at on that. But with money, we have this tangible sort of scorecard. It's like net worth, which is what you own minus what you owe. That's your net worth, how much you are worth. Um, it's like the world tells us that our net worth is actually our self-worth. Our net worth is not our self-worth. Our self-worth is not our net worth. And so many times we take on this identity that the amount of money, plus or minus, red or black, the amount of money is our self-worth, and it's not. We may not necessarily deserve everything we have, because remember we talked about the first lie, you deserve to have what they have. Let's just start from square one. The Bible says the wages of sin. Has anyone sinned in here? Has anyone done something against God? Anyone? A lot of liars in here. So you're sinning now. <laughs> anyone has sinned. Jesus said, or not Jesus, but Paul in the Bible said, the wages, what you are owed for your sin is death. Death is the absence of life. It is the absence of anything. So basically he's saying, if you've sinned, you deserve nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We don't deserve what they have. We don't even deserve what we have. But we may not deserve what we have, but there are two wonderful things we have in Jesus. Grace and mercy. 
grace and mercy. And grace means unmerited favor. I did nothing to deserve the gifts and the goodness that I've been given in my life. That is grace. And that comes from Jesus. And then mercy is I've actually done something to earn punishment. I've done something to earn punishment. But the one who has the power or authority to punish is going to not let me be punished. He's going to say, you don't have to be. We try to do this every now and then, not often, but every now and then with my kid, or with Zay, we will, we don't do it often because we also want him to learn from his mistakes, okay? But every now and then we want him to get the idea of grace. Because my parents did this, my mom's here today. Um, my parents did this with me, and I remember the moments they said, you deserve to be punished, or you didn't earn this, but I'm going to give it to you, or I'm not going to punish you anyway. And I just want you to know that's what grace and mercy is, and that's what Jesus does for us with our sin. And I remember those moments, but that's what it is. We, God's children, have done something against him or haven't done anything to earn it because we've sinned against him, and yet he gives us grace and mercy and says, even though you technically don't deserve it, I'm going to go the extra mile anyway. I'm going to come down, I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to raise again. Even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to decide you are because I'm God, and I'm going to look at you through that lens. And that's what he does for us. He gives us that grace and that mercy. So the truth is God has made us new so we can live differently. He doesn't make us new so we can keep on the same mistakes. Have you ever heard the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and accepting dif expecting different results? He's made us new so that we can have a new, better life. New is different than what it was. So the mistakes you've made, he's wiped those away when you go to him for forgiveness and repentance. Repentance saying, okay, I was going this way. I'm going to turn around and walk this way in this new way. In Isaiah, it says, forget the former things. See, do you see what I'm doing? It comes up in the wilderness. I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? He wants to do something new in our lives. We've got to let him. So number four today, the last lie that we're going to talk about today from the culture is you only live once. YOLO. YOLO. You only live once. Let's fill it in your notes. You only live once. AKA YOLO. If you ever see that like online, you don't know what YOLO means. You only live once. Actually, guys, if we're in Christ, if we're we live twice, first of all. We live once on earth and once in heaven. So we've got that. So we don't only live once. But the point is, even if we did, even if we die and it's the end, which we don't have that. We celebrated it a couple weeks ago with Easter. But even if we die today and it's done, we don't get to take our money with us. We don't get to take our things with us. However, it stays, and what we have left goes on to our children, goes on to our benefactors, goes on to whoever. It lives beyond us on earth. And then what we have used on earth for God's kingdom, there are spiritual rewards for in our second life in heaven. It goes beyond. So we don't need to say, well, I only live once. I'm going to splurge and get the all-inclusive resort for a month. <laughs> well, I'm going to go into debt just for my kids to have a $10,000 Christmas. Like, whatever it is, whatever it is. The, I think the standard for weddings now is like $60,000 for a wedding. I just, I don't understand. Anyway, sorry, if you had a $60,000 wedding... We love you still. I just, I don't even know what I would spend that money on personally. But 
we don't just live once. It goes beyond us. It goes to lives around us. It goes with us into the, not the financial, not the material stuff goes with us, but what we do with it, the stewardship of it, the character that we build and shape with it does go beyond us and with us. What we steward here pays dividends there, and it pays dividends here when we're gone. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So basically, a good person leaves something behind, leaves an inheritance behind in some way, shape, or form. But the sinner's wealth is going to be set aside. What they've been hoarding is going to be set aside for those who are righteous. He's going to redistribute it when we don't, if we don't um, steward it well. Taking care of our family isn't just for the now, but it can also be a legacy passed on. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Choose life. Choose life in this area of your life. We think it's not spiritual, but it is. All these verses clearly say that it is. If he talked about money more than heaven and hell, heaven and hell is like the most spiritual we can get, the least physical we can get, right? And he talked about money even more. It's spiritual. It's, and it's not about having more or less. It's about your character that shows up through how you handle it. How does your heart, how does your character show up? What are you worshiping? It's a ripple effect for our biological descendants and our, super, or and our spiritual descendants. For any of those that we touch and impact in this world, even beyond family, what you invest into the ministry of the church. Last forever, today in our huddle, we talked about the Big C Church. We talked about the Big C Church. We believe in the Big C Church. We believe in this church too, the Little C Church. Little C, Big C. We believe in God's church. And that when his church is mobilized, doing what it's called to do, that is the hope of the world. Because the church are the hands and feet and body of Christ. Right? That's the analogy that the Bible gives us. And if his body is paralyzed by the bonds of debt or the bonds of greed or selfishness or laziness or complacency or self-righteousness, he is not moving on this earth. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. So the church mobilized is the hope of the world. It's not about giving to this church, but it's about giving through the church. And we're talking about what we can, it's not you only live once. It's what is the life and legacy that's going to be beyond you. We give to OSL or Our Surrendered Lives, the orphanage in Mexico, and there's been prayer requests up here for some of those girls. We get um, picture updates, which I need to update the bulletin board with the pictures, and we get prayer requests for them. Um, hopefully, we're going to be doing a missions trip over there, but we pray for them regularly. They come over here, and we try to help when we can with supplies that they need, but they have like 23 to 26 kids right now, and they come from some horrific horrific circumstances and they are shown love and given a family a sense of they have like a couch with a pool in the backyard and like family it's a house with family with parents they call them their sons and daughters and mom and dad like it's a family that these orphans are given the bible says caring for the orphan and the widow and staying unpolluted from the world is true religion that god accepts true religion that god accepts and we give to that and we have a goal 
as the giving increases here, our goal is to give a flat percentage of all the offerings that come in to our surrendered lives. So when you give here, as our giving increases, we want to give a flat percentage every single month, every single year, straight to them no matter what. That's what our goal is to do, that it's not just based on individual gifts, but that our church as a whole gives to them and supports regularly from our general offering. Part of what you give here also results in life-giving churches. We give to an organization that plants and equips and trains and helps fund new church plants across America. And right now, church planting is the number one way that someone is most likely to give their life to Jesus. The first five years of a brand new church has the most salvations by percentage in America right now. And so we're giving literally to equip, train, support, fund pastors to go and literally be missionaries in the United States. So we've got overseas, we've got here, and then we've got our bus ministry, going and picking up kids, feeding kids, being a love for them when they may not get that anywhere else. We have, we've started in this adoptive block and there's already other people in the community who have seen it and are commenting on it and sharing it and wanting to do it in their church or wanting to sign up and do it with us even though they don't come to our church because they want to be part of something that's impacting and making a difference in the community. And when we have giving through that, we are able to do even more and reach even further beyond. It also helps give us like a fresh first step in the community where they get to see like who we are and that we're not all just like in tuxes and like ball gowns on Sunday morning, uptight and not really, you know, it's not just that, that we're real people who care about you. And we get to be a good first step to the community, even in like, our um, bulletins are, uh, you know, we have to print those uh, bulletins and those uh, envelopes, the giving envelopes. Got to print those and, you know, ink and copy leases and all that kind of, even that stuff. It gives us a good first face forward into the community. The signs, the way the facilities look, it makes people feel safe and comfortable when they come and when they see it, a mortgage getting paid off means more offering dollars going instead of to a mortgage company going into these ministries. That amount that we pay to a mortgage goes into a ministry instead. More staff hired and taken care of means staff who are free to minister to people more often, more specifically, more individualized. Staff who are able to press into God more and take that time to really seek God for what they need. Money isn't the thing, money is a tool to use for God's kingdom. Money is tool. And so when you give through your church, ministry happens and it lasts beyond us. So the truth is when stewarded well, your money impacts more than just yourself. When stewarded well, your money impacts more than just yourself. And just real quick as we wrap up, because I want to respect everyone's time on everything and I'm a little bit behind. I just want to say that these lies come from two different spirits of the enemy. And a spirit doesn't need to be like, ooh, woo, 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 like crazy, scary stuff or whatever. A spirit is just a, a spiritual force of evil working against us in this world. Okay? So it doesn't need to be something scary or crazy. That's what it is. But there's two spirits. I want you to know this and fill it in your, uh, fill in the blank. The spirit of pride. The spirit of pride in this world says that wealth comes from hard work. If I just work harder, if I do it all on my own, spirit of pride, wealth will come. And then the spirit of poverty, the spirit of poverty says wealth comes from the devil. I'm going to just, I'm too scared 
to be wealthy. I'm not going to do it. It is evil. So we have both opposite ends of the extreme, right? Both opposite ends. Wealth comes from the devil. But the truth that we've combated these lies with come from a spirit of generosity that frees us to be able to be cheerful givers where the truth sets us free. Jesus is the truth that sets us free. A spirit of generosity says that wealth comes from God. And so therefore, it's not mine to hoard, but I get to steward it with a spirit of generosity. I want to close with this song. I'm going to read to you song lyrics. It's a song that I heard a lot when I was little in the 90s. Um, If you want to go look it up, it definitely has a 90s feel. But it gives me goosebumps every time. So I'm going to read you the lyrics. Because generosity, yes, we're talking about money. But generosity is in everything, not just in money. It says this. I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man. And he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. Then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. And Jesus took the gift you gave. And that's why I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. One by one they came, far as the eyes could see. Each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made unnoticed on the earth in heaven now proclaimed. It's not YOLO. It's not you only live once. What we do here, what we give here, how we steward here, and how we let it shape our integrity and our character to reflect the heart of God who gives generously good gifts to all of his children. The more we become shaped by him, the reward lasts beyond us. And I know up in heaven you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, he said, my child, look around you. For great is your reward. What we steward here with the tool of money that God's given us, with any tools he's given us, whether it's our gifts, our talents, our calling, what we steward here pays dividends after we're gone here and there when we get there. So everyone could bow your head and close your eyes. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are for your grace, for your mercy, for your love for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just continue to shape us, that your Holy Spirit and your spirit of generosity would sweep over us, that we would have a heart, not just this innate desire in us to make a difference, but that we would have the spirit of generosity to live in a way that truly does make a difference. Give us the power to find that and to see that. And with everyone's head still bowed and eyes still closed, I just want to give an opportunity, if there's anyone who doesn't know Jesus today and you want to know Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray with us today. And we're not going to call you out or single you out or anything like that. But I just want to ask on the count of three, just as a show of your faith, to raise your hand. And then we'll just pray together as a group. One, two, three. If that's you today, you want to make that decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, go ahead and raise your hand. All right. Victory Faith, let's pray 
together, and the worship team can come on up. Let's pray together. Repeat after me if you would. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I give you all my resources. I give you everything I have. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to find my identity in you. You're the Lord of my life. I love you. In Jesus' name.